I was a one man band. Why? Because it's better than being an accountant in Birmingham. <laughs> hey, podcast listener. Even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. All right, so we just got done a 30-minute chat. Chris Cage from Green Bellies. We got the pop the hood on Chris's business. Chris creates meal replacement bars. So you're telling me I don't need to cook lunch. I can just eat your bar and I'm good to go. Three a day, 2,000 calories. And what's interesting is that you just raised $20,000 on Kickstarter. So this isn't you know rehashing our old stories of Ian's cat furniture and all that. This is something fresh. And everybody thought money made you happy. Chris is reasonably unhappy over here. <laughs> and that's the he other reason. He just raised $20,000 and the guy's got tears in his eyes. What's going on with that? <laughs> I'm isolated. I live at home with my mom and I have nobody to bank ideas off of for my business. And it's amazing all these problems, yet so much is going right. We go into detail in this episode about how many things have gone right over the past year and kind of what you're looking for going forward. Yeah, it's kind of like I feel like Ian and I, you're on the couch and Ian and I get to play shrink a little bit. (laughs) But honestly, you know, we've created an incredibly generous community of entrepreneurs here. Last night, you got a taste of it. You came to Austin sitting around on a table people were beating you up and like you should do this you should do that you know this is the classic entrepreneurs love to give advice because they're facing so much things that they're not doing in their own business and that was wonderful and i'm hoping that the listeners will come through with some advice on how you might increase your profitability and your market reach but also you'd probably be interested in investors advisors business partners so it'd be interesting to see what everybody thinks after hearing your story so if you want the background to what we're talking about links to chris's stuff plus this is a bonus Ian's, what would you call it? The intimidating, the cash flow spreadsheet. Well, we did a couple of spreadsheets, yeah, to, to figure out what kind of business Chris had and, you know, things that we need to work on in the future or whatever. So, and this is a game changer and something that everyone should do in their yeah. business. Huge game changer for me. So yeah, because can- actually putting the numbers down before you get started, right? So it's yeah. like, hey, I'm going to put these numbers down. I'm going to figure out where this business is going to be in the next couple of years. Really important. It's about truth. You know, it's about figuring out what is, what is the truth of what this business is doing today. What is the truth of what it's going to do two years from now? And it can be a scary truth. That's what he's about. He's about truth, truth. over here. <laughs> so we're going to put a version of Ian's terrifying financial spreadsheet up at this blog post, tropicalmba.com slash greenbelly. So let's play that unfunky bass walk and get into the story. Our little tale starts in New Zealand with you on a high-performance bicycle and all of your personal possessions on the bicycle as well. Yes, so I'm cycle touring New Zealand and every day I'm cycling up to 100 miles a day. That kind of level of activity, I was burning a lot, a lot of calories. I think a lot of the people I was cycling with were burning up to 4,000 calories a day, which is you know over double the average nutritional intake for you know somebody not doing that level of activity. So that's a lot of bowls of chili. It's a lot of bowls of chili. 
There's a product over there that it was uh, a lot of calories, kind of a meal on the go concept. And we were chomping these things down like crazy. When you're doing that like 100 miles a day, the last thing I ever wanted to do was to stop and cook. So I really loved this product. And then I came back to the United States to hike the Appalachian Trail. And a similar concept where I was, instead of cycling, I was hiking all day. In this case, it was about 20 miles a day, but the same level of caloric burn. And I was really saying, hey, I need that product in the United States. So that's where I got the idea for Green Belly. And I had this idea for a really a complete meal on the go that would provide about one third of your daily nutrition for six core nutrients. So you really would have this meal that would be healthy and have a balanced nutritional profile. And at the end of the day, when you're really burning a lot of calories, you're on the go, you're not having to stop and cook. You know, this is what inspired me about your business so much is it, it reminds me of the Jetsons a little bit, you know, like George Jetson goes up to the wall and he says, give me lunch. I'm a little bit surprised, like two things. Why don't these things exist? Why don't I walk down to 7-Eleven and it's like, eat this and it's a meal. And why are, did you feel like you were the person to do something about it? I mean, you're not a baker. You're just a guy. So what gave you the confidence to, to do this? I'm not even sure I really had the confidence when I first started going, to be honest. I felt like I was semi-business savvy. I had the accounting background. I had no entrepreneurial experience, and I certainly didn't know anything about nutrition. And that kind of balanced nutritional profile definitely needed some sort of food science. So I ended up just really doing some research and kind of just started slugging away at it and figuring out what I needed to learn and what I didn't need. And pretty quickly on acknowledged the fact that I didn't know anything about food. So I actually contracted out to a food scientist and chef to get that nutritional profile where it needed to be and to get them to actually taste good. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you go into the store, right, and you go into REI or the grocery store or anything like that, they have like a whole half of an aisle dedicated to bars. basically bars, right? And so it's like, what gave you the confidence to think this is different? And how is it different? Yeah, good question. Caloric content and nutritional, how robust the nutritional profile is. If you go down the aisle, even things that are being marketed as weightlifting bars cap out like at 420 calories. Our meals have 650-ish. So, I mean, right there, you're, you're already having a substantial larger amount of calories and the balanced nutritional profile concept a lot of people depending on what the market is say like hey this is a weightlifting bar therefore it needs to have 30 grams of protein or hey this is this it needs to have this sugar like this we kind of took the fda's recommended daily nutrition values and just divided them by three and on that concept we went with the the real meal concept that eat three of these a day you're gonna get what you need so that kind of concept is pretty unique to us yeah and the concept is interesting i think chris because you're doing activities that require you to have lightweight packs so you're hiking you're also biking it's like you can't fill up your pack with enough of these bars right so you gotta have some kind of solution that's a complete meal i don't think people realize how many calories you burn either when you're doing these kinds of things you're going on an unsupported bike trip for 100 miles a day i mean it's just a ridiculous amount of calories there's not enough goo that they sell in the store that you can eat right <laughs> yeah definitely you always hear different estimates but i mean some people are burning you know up to 5,000 calories on the appalachian trail so i mean you definitely need to eat more green bellies to get to that calorie content but yeah that's something where that kind of back to the idea of it though was like some people really need nutrition you know, and they need it quickly and they need it to be balanced. Well, you know, what's interesting to me about this, and we'll get to this at the end of the show, because we're going to start to talk about how you made money. Because, <laughs> but, you know, I'm trying to make money. Look, if you go out, I've been on the Appalachian Trail. If you go out there, there ain't nobody on that trail. So this is a very, very small market. But, you know, I'm wearing a watch right now that was developed with, you know, Navy SEALs. And there's not a lot of Navy SEALs. So I think what happens is that everybody eats meals. Everybody wears watches, and a lot of times the innovations come from the edges. 
And so I think that that's what's interesting is, is your product could potentially compete with McDonald's or with Lean Cuisine because I want to save time. And so maybe I want to balance nutritional profile with a robust calories as well. Now, everybody knows I don't need that many calories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that could be what, you know, the company Soylent. I don't know if everybody's familiar with that. They just got a ton of funding. It's this meal and a shake kind of thing. And, you know, this kind of idea has been happening for the last 20 years. It's like, oh, you're going to take pill replacement or whatever. So it's a really interesting marketplace. But, you know, that's not how a business starts. A business starts with one customer giving you money. So let's get jump into that story. So, yeah, we had a product ready with the food scientist and we sent out samples and retweaked and retweaked the formula. till we've had something that we felt was tasty as well as that balanced nutritional profile. And at the end of the day, when we actually had a product ready, it was probably around July of 2014. Give everybody an idea here because you said you don't have any entrepreneurial experience, right? You're not a business dude. You're doing accounting and you like hiking and biking. Give everybody an idea of the cost that it took you to get up to July? Because I'm thinking, I'm hearing food scientists, I'm hearing development, like what's your kind of burn at this point? Mind you, I was living with my parents to save money there, which which I was trying to make some personal sacrifices there. (laughs) I think getting up to July, it was definitely no more than ten to $15,000. Yeah, that's impressive to hear because I think a lot of people, I, I get nervous when I hear that scientist word. I think, geez, how much totally, is this guy yeah. going to charge? So 10 or 15 grand, you've got yourself a product. you got yourself three products, right? you got a couple different, different flavors. flavors. Yep, yep. Okay. And so where do we go from there? Okay, so we had a product ready in July. And just because we had a product ready that I felt confident about, I really thought it tasted good. And I was excited about the nutritional profile. I was excited about the weight. You know, it was what I wanted to be my complete meal product. I didn't have any customers and I was not familiar with my lack of entrepreneurial experience, how to hit market. I kind of came up with the idea to attack some influencers. And so I sent out some samples to specific hiking athletes that I knew or biking athletes and kind of said, hey, I'd be curious on your thoughts about the product. And that kind of snowballed into some product reviews online. And the product reviews posted a link to our website, which then therefore channeled customers. And we started getting some sales and gaining a little bit of traction with some e-commerce customers. And I also kind of, on top of the e-commerce front, we did a little bit of retail front. I sent some samples to some retail stores, some hiking outfitters that I felt fairly confident that were familiar with the hiking market and would be interested in a 650 calorie product. So in a lot of ways, like your ideas were validated because this is the scary part. You're like, hey, I'm Chris. I'm a hiker. I've got this problem. Like how many other hikers experience this problem? Well, all my friends say they have the problem, but they're my friends, so they're not going to tell me the truth. So you reached out to these people that you didn't know anything about. How did you find them? You found them on the internet and you just basically said, hey, I'm Chris. I'm a hiker like you. I've developed this product. What do you think about it? Yeah. And I think a lot of it was, I'm kind of obsessed with hiking. So I knew a lot of kind of semi C-class, I guess, if you would. Like hiking celebs. Yeah. Hiking celebs, if you will. Yeah. Or uh, ultra marathoners that had their blog. They had a little bit of their own influence. So I really kind of reached out to them. And the fact that I was an AT through hiker kind of gave me a little bit of credibility that, okay, this isn't just some Wahoo that's trying to send me samples from big corporate America. You know, this guy is really trying to do something here. I think that really helped a lot, too. What was that term that you just said? There? AT through hiker. Appalachian Trail through hiker. Okay, so that means you went start to finish, or what is that? <laughs> right, I, right. You, okay. uh, the term through hiker is applied to anybody who does the entire trail within a year-long period. I mean, most people just do it in you know five to six months without stopping, but yeah. You got some really quality press from this. You got a small amount of customers. At this point, you start thinking about Kickstarter. You raised, how much money was your Kickstarter campaign? Set a goal of 10,000, raised just under 20. 
And so what was the inspiration for you to go to Kickstarter then? Like we were talking about going to the market influencers. Yeah, that was great. Definitely got some traction, learned a lot about how to get customers, learned about a lot about the e-commerce process, order fulfillment, blah, and blah, blah. And you're, you're order fulfilling from your mom's kitchen, right? I mean, yeah. you're putting on a chef's cap and cooking these things. You got it. I was cooking everything by hand. I was doing the marketing. I was doing the accounting. I was packaging them by hand. I was putting on the stickers. I was printing labels. I was shipping to customers. Like this, you talk about a one man band. I was I was a one man band. Why? Because it's better than being an accountant in Birmingham. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I mean, at the end of the day, I kind of justified it with, "Hey, I'm learning something." You know, like, worst case, I'm learning a lot. You know. But yeah, back to the Kickstarter question. I knew that at the rate that I was gaining customers in my revenue, I knew that I needed to, you know, up the ante. I needed more volume so I kind of started thinking about fundraising in general and you know the conventional options of an investor were kind of scary because I didn't want to sacrifice equity I didn't want to go to a bank and you know go into debt there's no way I was going to go into debt with a product that I was not completely confident in and I kind of heard a little bit of buzz about Kickstarter and the fact that it's a low risk way to fundraise and after a little more research I found out a lot more of the pros of Kickstarter being you can really validate your product you can test the market see if this is really a good product that people are willing to exchange their money for. You can get PR from Kickstarter. A lot of people go on Kickstarter. I think they have 8 million visitors. It's kind of like Costco for young people. Exactly. They just go on there to see cool people doing cool things. Exactly. I knew at the end of the campaign, no matter what, more people would know about Greenbelly by being on Kickstarter than before. So I started really kind of pursuing the concept of Kickstarter, which was an uphill in itself, to say the least. And so you said you spent like two or three months kind of researching how the Kickstarter process goes. You spent that time reaching out to influencers, getting them to come back to the page. You I kind of had the same approach, right, definitely. as you did in the beginning. So it's like, hey, I'm going to reach out to these influencers and then I'm going to drive them to my site. I'm an expert on this. They're going to be attracted to exactly. me. Exactly. Yeah, I think it was the first approach to launching the product on steroids. I really kind of had a taste for what it took to get some customers. And doing a lot more research, I figured out, you know, what makes a Kickstarter campaign go boom. And I really think I concluded it just came down to how many eyeballs were on the campaign, which, you know, comes out to your PR outreach. So I knew I needed more social media following. I needed more influencers. I needed more everything. So I really started trying to pitch more and more media outlets. Because you told me before the interview, you said I didn't have any social media presence. I didn't, I like, no accounts the only people anything. that knew you were the people that came to your site, bought, and a couple of these backpackers that you had sent emails to previously. So you really had nothing when you showed up to Kickstarter in terms of an online presence. Right. Sure. I mean, so I really started taking it to the next level a couple months before Kickstarter. So that's when I really reached out to a lot more press and I kind of quantitatively measured a bunch of market influencers. So I had four different categories, small, medium, big, and mega. And based upon how many Facebook likes they had or Twitter followers, so I'm talking about magazines, bloggers, newspapers, any kind of media outlet that there is. And then based upon you know where they were, I kind of catered my pitches pitches being 99% of the time a cold email, you know, what might interest them and what might interest them about my product, what might interest them in a story, an interview featuring the Kickstarter campaign when it goes live. That really, I think for the most part, was very successful. Got some big media talking about Greenbelly and here I was, this one-man band, you know, doing it all on my own and you know, we had Bicycling Magazine writing articles about it, so that was cool leading up to Kickstarter. Give me an example of one of the outreach emails that you sent because here's the problem, most people just can't help themselves, you know, so most people, they write the email it's like, I'm Chris from Greenbelly. I'm doing this Kickstarter. You should check it out and share with all your followers, right? <laughs> exclamation so like, point, exclamation point. How, how do you approach these people so you're not that dude? 
That's a great point. I think you like hit the worst example in your example right there saying I, 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 nobody cares about, nobody cares about you. Like, so thinking about who you're pitching. So if it's an ultralight backpacker, you know, they're probably really cared about getting some cutting edge product from a real hiker. You know, that's what they would care about is getting a cool product that they can feature on their blog that might be a little unique. If you're pitching a big media outlet, they're not going to give a crap about Kickstarter campaigns. They probably get pitched all the time about Kickstarter campaigns. So trying to find your angle and making it unique and catered towards that media outlet and what really trying to really think about what they might care about. That was really what I tried to keep in mind with my email pitches. You had a pretty decent success. You raised $20,000 on Kickstarter. What would you do differently? You know, for guys like Ian and I, we're still a little intimidated by these crowdsourcing things. <laughs> Maybe our next product we'll put up there. What have you learned from doing crowdfunding? Oh, man. I don't know if I would have gone a different route, honestly. I think I learned a heck of a lot about PR and reaching out and what it takes to launch a product. So Chris, at this point, you've had a pretty successful Kickstarter campaign. You raised $20,000. I think what's interesting, though, about that, and I think this is what happens to a lot of people that go into Kickstarter, is that they raise the money, whether it's $20,000 or $200,000, and it really doesn't change anything, right? So you said to me before the show, you said, you know, I felt the same when I made my first sale versus when I got the $20,000. I just thought like, hmm, that's kind of cool. It's pushing things in the right direction, but how do we make this into a real business? <laughs> well, I want to... Think about the progression here because you did a great job at the front end, getting a cash flow, selling. But a viable business has a back end, a sustainable operation. So if you look at it, it's like, well, if you can sell a bar for $5, does it mean that you have a business? No. If you can raise $20,000 on Kickstarter, does it mean that you have a viable business? No. If you can convince an investor to give you $100,000, does it mean that you have a viable business? No. And like you can keep scaling it up and go the whole way to the biggest internet startup that raised 100 million and then goes flat the next two years. So the, I guess the question is, is, how do you think about the viable business part then? Kickstarter proved the fact that there is a product here that people were willing to exchange their hard-earned money for. Great. That's exciting. Like you said, though, getting it to be a viable business was a totally different demon that I really wasn't sure how to take on. Like you mentioned, my first sale versus having the $20,000. It was kind of like, great, but now what do I do? And that came down to actually talking with you all a little about cash flow projections and really breaking down the financial statements into a detailed level and trying to find that break-even point. How much do I need to sell at what price point in order to break even or in order to make a profit? So a few weeks ago, Ian put on his accounting suit and swooped into your business and showed you his famous cash flow spreadsheet. And <laughs> you mentioned that it was kind of... I uh, opened I guess, you know, when I was talking to you about it, and the reason I wanted to invite you on the show is we have all had that moment in every single business we've started where you actually look at it for <laughs> reals. And it's always eye-opening. So I'm curious, like, what was that moment like for you? What did you see for the first time? It was extremely educational, first of all. A little bit scary. I think the big realization I had was that I think a lot in the food world, too, margins are lower, and therefore you're volumes have to be higher and kind of there's a big gap between where we are now and where we need to be in order to become a profitable business and that also kind of proposed the challenge of cash flow is how do you get to those volumes that you need to be at to break even when you're not going to be profitable in the meantime 
So the first thing we looked at when we looked at your product that I noticed, and you can decide how far you want to go into these details, Chris, but the first thing I noticed was like, you got to double your price, right? So right now you're selling the bars for how much? Four-ish. Right. And I said, Chris, where in America can I get a meal for $4? And you said nowhere. So <laughs> right away. Except for McDonald's. Yeah, <laughs> Vietnam. Right. So right away, we decided, you know, that you've got to double your price. And I think that that's a really important part of this because your margins look really thin. And if you're going to run a real business, you got to have some margins built in, especially in the beginning, because you got to have all these overhead costs. You know, we're talking about a kitchen, we're talking about insurance, we're talking about your salary, all this stuff. So I think what we had to do was we had to lay out these spreadsheets and you did a great job. So we would have these conversations and say, hey, Chris, but what about the insurance? Hey, Chris, but what about this? What about that? And this is why having the operational sophistication is so important to a business because you being the one-man band obscures the costs of all of those things if they were operating at scale. So yeah, well, it's mom's kitchen now, but what happens when you have to hire a kitchen? And so what happens is, is like with a $20,000 Kickstarter campaign, you might be able to do it all yourself and then pocket a couple thousand. You're like, it's good for me, (laughs) but that's not good for business. And if you were to run a business that way, it might work as a division of Nabisco or something where they're just trying to build brand equity. But as a lifestyle business entrepreneur, you got to make that work for yourself at scale. Especially because you want to spend your time on the trail. You don't want to spend your time in the kitchen, right? So those are some (laughs) of the problems that we came up in the spreadsheet, right? It's like, well, at first you're thinking like, well, maybe I'll just like do the cooking or maybe I'll do the packing. And then before you know it, you're running out of hours in the week and you got to turn this into a real business. And I'm not growing it by doing those. Right. But I think the most important thing about all this spreadsheet talk, Chris, for me was your willingness to be honest about the process and understand what the real costs were. Because I think people get seduced into this idea that they can turn this into a business because they had a $20,000 Kickstarter launch. You're real with yourself, right? You said like, look, I'm looking at these numbers here. We're going to have to do something drastically. We're going to have to double or triple the price. We're going to have to find this other facility. You were able to be really honest with yourself and trying to figure out how this is going to actually turn into a business and not just go for it, you know, because a lot of people, I think what they would do, Chris, is they would just go for it now for the next two years yeah, and not being honest with themselves and knowing that there's going to be a stop sign in those two years. What you really want to do is you want to get yourself on a curve. Well, and what I like about this, so Ian and I recently had a moment like this in our business where it's like, are you going to keep this your baby? Are you going to make it a business? And with our Dynamite Circle conferences, we've never made any money on them. And so Ian keeps coming in and saying, well, why are you, know, you going to keep it your baby are you gonna make or are you going to look it up with some operational sophistication and make it run on itself? Is this something that can sustain itself as a mature business? I had to look at that hard and say like, well, the same kind of things that we're talking about with your, well, can you double the price? How could you do that? How could you add more value to your customers? How can you think about it not as the original thing you're thinking like, well, backpackers are my market. Well, if they aren't paying you enough money, then they're not your market. And they right. never can be your market unless you want to be in the kitchen for the next two years, you know? And so these are the kinds of challenges, awesome challenges, when you're forced to sort of up-level yourself and say, you know, you got to double your price. And so, yeah, maybe backpackers aren't going to pay it. So now what are you going to do? And I think that's when the spreadsheets come in. They kind of, it's like a whole nother level of changing your approach. Bicycles still pay for it. We pay a lot of money for bikes. So. <laughs> I yeah, think, the bicyclist market has a different, different I think, income. I think a lot techies of- will pay for it. Anybody that's busy. That's what I love about your product. I think George Jetson's time is now. And when I'm buying your product, when I'm paying you 10 bucks for a meal, I'm not buying calories or performance on the trail or economy. 
I'm buying two hours of my day back. That's right. If you look in the fridge behind us, there's a stack of fixed foods, local company here in yeah. Austin. I pay $14 a meal. They deliver it twice a week and I never have to think about cooking. It's a completely but you got to heat meal. those up. So, you know, if <laughs> you're, you're still a, spending time cooking there. If you're a sure. busy business person going, why don't you skip the power lunch and meet me at the racquetball court, right? That's something that an executive might want to do three or four times a week. And that's why I think when you put the spreadsheet down and you look at the hard truths of your business, those are the opportunities that start to open up. We did just that, right, Chris? We put all these numbers on the spreadsheet. We kind of looked at what's one year look like, what's three years look like, what are the costs associated? Let's be real about how much staff it takes. That was one of the things that came out on the spreadsheet. So it's like, oh yeah, we're doing $2 million in revenue. And at one point, I think we had like two employees on there, right? right? So it's like the employees have to scale as revenue scales, right? So you have to be real. Here's another thing that's interesting about this process of the Ian spreadsheet. And I can't wait to put the spreadsheet out to listeners of this show so that they can go through this process because it's really interesting interesting all of a sudden this is your thing your business your baby well you can't really share that with another entrepreneur unless you're speaking the same language and the language of businesses is spreadsheets so you got a guy like ian coming into your business all you're objective. speaking the same language yeah. it's not his baby and he's saying this is an ugly baby yeah. i don't want your baby <laughs> <laughs> What would it take for you to be an investor in a business like this? Like, what do you need to see from Chris from an operational perspective in order to come in on something like this or to you run a similar business? Yeah, so that's why I'm scared of it, obviously, because it's very inventory intensive in a lot of ways. And like you said, this market is very hard because the margins are thin. But that being said, I don't really have any experience in this market. And this market that you're in is just exploding. Like, you know, back 10 years ago, it was like the power bar and the cliff bar, right? Right. And now there's a whole aisle and now you're talking about a whole new thing which is meal replacement i think it's going to be huge i just don't have a lot of experience in it so for me personally i have to get more experience i have to get more comfortable with the industry i'm very comfortable with you and your knowledge of what's going on but for me personally i have to get more experience the other thing that i think you have to consider as an investor going into a business like this are all the spreadsheets right? Yes, I, I feel like now the spreadsheets, we've gotten to a point where I feel comfortable with the financials. I think the next thing for me, Dan, in terms of investing in this business as an outsider is process, right? So it's like, what process does Chris's business share with our existing businesses? And I have to make sure that there's enough crossover there. So, you know, I hear about these guys that are investing in Amazon type businesses, right? They're going in and they're buying companies that are selling on Amazon. It's really easy to, to continue to do that because you have a scalable process, right? So it's just you throw the SOPs at them and they go for it and you own 50% of their company to skyrockets. This is a very different business than what I have right now. A lot of my SOPs don't cross over. So right. from an investor standpoint of view, I think for me, I have to make sure that I can build processes that I can use in Chris's business and I can use in many other businesses that I invest in that are going to hopefully grow. Does that make a lot of sense? Yeah, interesting. So how do you feel about the future of your business now after having gone through the exercise of putting it on paper and starting to communicate it with other entrepreneurs? Yeah, a whole lot better. And kind of back to the spreadsheets, one thing that I think is making it better going forward is even since making the spreadsheets, I've had to make decisions based on financials. And the decision-making process has been a whole lot easier with that level of detail that those spreadsheets have provided. You know, projections, they're never going to be actual. And I think it's made it a whole lot easier for me having that level of detail. So if something does change, I can tweak and figure out accordingly what needs to be done. But that's what's interesting though, right? Because you said projections are never going to be actual. So in some ways, you're filling out a sheet that with inaccurate information, (laughs) yet it still somehow helps you to make decisions. Oh yeah. 
Definitely. It's very easy to underestimate the long-term impacts of like taking on an extra cost or going with a co-pack versus a local kitchen or, you know, that can have these like long-term ramifications into year number three, theoretically, that you might not have saw if you wouldn't have used a spreadsheet. I want to say one other thing too about the, from an investor's point of view and, and Chris's business, you know, Dan, when you and I were getting started, we were in a similar situation as Chris, right? Yeah. And we approached somebody and they invested in us and that's exactly what they invested in. Like they didn't necessarily believe in the product that we were selling or anything like that. They just said, here's two relatively smart guys, not as smart as Chris, relatively <laughs> smart guys. And I'm going to invest in them because I feel like they're going to, at some point, they're going to bring the butter home for me. And so I feel like there's an interesting opportunity with you there too, Chris, which is like, you are the asset, right? Like I look at this market and I look at this product and I think like, this is really cool, but here's a dude that's like super passionate about what he's doing and like, look at all the success he's had so far. I believe that you will continue to have success in the future. So that, I think that's another metric that's a little bit less quantifiable, you know, right, but totally. it's something that's worth approaching if you're an investor. Chris, you got a lot of things to do. You know, probably you can't just be the official food supplier of the Appalachian Trail. You know, you got to figure out a way to change the brand and bring it to busy people that want meal replacements. And you got $20,000 in your pocket now. What are you doing with that? Yeah, what, what's next? The big things is lining up production. Like I said, I was doing everything on my own. That has to be new facility. So that's a big thing I'm lining up right now is a new facility, somebody to fulfill orders. And the other thing is rebranding. Like you mentioned, you know, Appalachian Trail through hikers, it's just a tiny market. So part of the rebranding, I think, is going to be new packaging, new website. Where do we fit in the market? Are, are we just a thru-hiker meal? Are we going after executives? Where do we fit into the market? So I think that's those two things are the big things I'm grappling with right now. When I think of Green Belly... I think of sort of hippie, macrobiotic. Last night was interesting. You were sitting around a table and entrepreneurs were just jumping all over you. The impact of being in a place like Austin has got to be pretty immense for starting a business like this, yeah? Definitely. And back to the one-man band concept. For any of you entrepreneurs out there that are doing a business by yourself, I think you can appreciate how lonely at times it is. So I think even last night, like talking to those entrepreneurs, like there was definitely some electricity for me, kind of like, whoa, that's a good idea. Like, hey, maybe I need to be coming somewhere where there are a lot of other entrepreneurs that we can kind of have a little bit of synergy, feed off each other, bang off ideas. So that's definitely another consideration that I'm thinking about is where do I see myself living where I can kind of get that sort of feedback and energy that it will be so essential to going forward in the long haul. Very cool. So, and we're going to try to open up that virtually too. You're very receptive to advice and i think entrepreneurs love helping out people who take action so all the show notes the spreadsheet that you can download so that you can take the boss man financial challenge <laughs> any advice you'd like to give to us it'll all be at tropicalmba.com slash green hopefully a brand will change <laughs> eventually <laughs> and where can people contact you chris chris at greenbellybar.com Awesome. Well, thanks for coming out to Austin. Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.